On the corner of Fifth and Elm in Cincinnati, Ohio, sits a tiny shop with a giant clock above its door. A man notes the time you enter the store as you walk in. Every minute matters as you decide what to buy. A few pounds of flour? A bag of oats? Bread? Your family is hungry so you don't have much money. But you trained as a carpenter and you do make a mean kitchen table. Thirty minutes later, you grab a five-pound bag of flour. You approach the storekeeper, hoping to complete the transaction quickly. Time, especially here, is of the essence. It's 1827, and America's expanding west in a fervor of adventure and independence. The rolling hills of Cincinnati sit on the edge of the Ohio River as America hurtles forward into the Industrial Revolution. In this small city that earmarks civilization, peculiarities pop up as quickly as they fade. One such place? The Cincinnati Times Store. What was sold at the Cincinnati Times Store is not remarkable. The shop sold basic food items, household supplies, fabrics, other raw materials. But how sales were made is a different story. Because the price of that five-pound bag of flour wasn't listed in dollars and cents. It was listed in time. The shopkeeper would ring you up for, say, three hours total, two and a half hours for the flower, and 30 minutes of the shopkeeper's time assisting you. You pay not in cash, but in labor notes, indicating an agreement of three hours of carpentry work in exchange for the flower. The Cincinnati Times Store was the creation of Josiah Warren, an author, printer, musician, inventor, and thinker who is regarded as the first American anarchist, and not, as many people think, Johnny Rottenseed. Wait, did that did that joke land, Max? No. Huh? Can we can we keep it anyway? Josiah Warren sought to create colonies that would work just like the Time Store, which he would eventually use to transform how the world thought about currency, value, and personal liberty. You know, this morning, I did not pay my gas bill with an agreement to perform two hours of migrating VMs into Azure. And if that sounds like gobbledygook to you, don't worry. You can easily substitute in the phrase, something to do with computers. So, by that measure, no, the Time Store wasn't successful. It closed two years after it opened. But, what if I told you that during those two years, it actually became the most popular retail store in Cincinnati? Hi everyone, I'm Scott Herms. And this is Look Both Ways, a podcast about experimentation, world-changing ideas, and the willingness to get things wrong. Each episode follows a two-act structure. First, a failed idea of the past, and second, an unsolved challenge of the present. This show is made possible by Ken Carta, a digital transformation consultancy who believes in making the world work better for everyone. They also pay me in dollars to migrate on-premises VMs into Azure. Something to do with computers. On this week's episode, why was the Cincinnati Times Store successful for the short time it existed? And what prevented it from catching on further? Then, we'll fast forward to today's dominant alternative currency, airline miles. No, just kidding. (laughs) Maybe a future episode, but we're talking about Bitcoin. Activists and skeptics are sounding the alarm on the massive amount of energy required to mine the cryptocurrency. Is the Bitcoin community doing enough to address it? How will mining have to evolve to deliver on the promise of decentralized currency without harming the planet? Why do we need an alternative currency anyway? But first, back to Cincinnati. Pardon me while I grab a bowl of five-way chili. Mmm, unusual combination of ingredients. Today, the corner of Fifth and Elm in Cincinnati hosts a few modern hotels in red brick mid-rises with a giant mural of a cartoon pig with wings flying out of a sunset with words below that read, In this city, dream big and fly high. Josiah Warren did exactly half of those things. He dreamt very big, and while he didn't realize his vision for a time-based economy, it was believed to be one of the most successful retail stores in Cincinnati while it was open. So the time store didn't fly high, but it got off the ground. It flew about as much as a chicken does. 
It's not hard to imagine the appeal of the Time Store. If I wanted to have a nice steak dinner one evening, I would walk down to the Time Store and purchase a few cuts of sirloin from the butcher in exchange for four hours of improv lessons. Uh, by the way, in addition to podcast host, Azure Architect, failed Jeopardy contestant, and victim number three in a straight-to-VHS slasher movie, please add, improv instructor, I need a suggestion for a place. Yes, and not that place, but a place I can actually make a joke about. Thank you. Don't forget to tip your weight staff. No refunds. For Warren, the core principle behind the Time Store was essentially twofold. The value of anything comes from the labor that went into producing it, and profiting from someone else's labor is therefore unethical. Everything Warren sold in the store was sold at cost, plus a small surcharge to cover the overhead of the store. But profit? There was none. Not in the traditional sense. The, the five-pound bag of flour was listed at two and a half hours because Warren paid two and a half hours in labor notes to the miller who produced it. If a merchant wanted something to be sold at the time store, Warren required them to submit written estimates of the labor cost of their product at a public meeting. Prices would then stay fixed until the next public meeting. The only extra charge would be in direct proportion to the amount of shopkeeper's time you took while in the store, as indicated by the big scary clock on the wall. Eventually, the Time Store introduced a labor exchange board. People could list their available services, they could specify just how much bread four hours of baking could yield, and a marketplace was created. Every hour was equal. An hour of sign painting could buy you an hour of legal advice. An hour's worth of baked cookies equal an hour's worth of dentistry services. Josiah Warren thought of the store as an experiment. He wanted to prove that a time-based currency really could be an economically viable way to prevent exploitation, deception, and corruption that he believed was inherent to state-controlled money. The Time Store wasn't his first experiment with such a goal, and it wouldn't be his last. He definitely has a somewhat of a crackpot quality, <laughs> but also something of a, of a genius quality that I wanted to recover. That's Dr. Crispin Sartwell, a philosophy professor at Dickinson College and a 21st century anarchist. He's one of the few people who has tried to take a deep dive into Josiah Warren, which, given the lack of documentation on him, proves to be a difficult task. So his view was that we need some kind of circulating medium or currency that rather than representing gold, for example, or other commodities, or being backed sort of by fiat by a central bank, state bank, was simply a representation of each person's labor. What you'd be spending really is your own, uh, initially anyway, is your own labor notes that like a promise to work with whatever skills you have, whether it's, you know, direct like physical labor, it could be ditch digging, or it could be seamstressing, you know, or it could be lawyering or whatever it might be, skilled or unskilled labor. And, you know, he was really into trying to realize alternative economic arrangements on a practical basis, like within communities, sort of an experimental, practical approach to economic questions. To the customers of the Time Store, it was exactly that a more practical approach. It was thought of as the cheapest store in town. People could get access to goods and services they might not be able to afford elsewhere. All they needed was time to exchange. He's selling this stuff at hyper minimal cost. So, it, I mean, in a way he's trying to show that the logic of capitalism itself will start to delete the profit motive in the long run. Because if you operate without it, or if you minimize profit, you can undersell people who are not doing that. So people loved the Time Store because it appeared to be a cheaper and simpler way to purchase the goods and services they needed. Dr. Sartwell says the other major clue to what made something like the Cincinnati Time Store so compelling? Anarchist ideas speak to people, particularly when it seems your country may be on the brink of civil war and general faith in your government is on decline. Oh, really? The historical context is important. Cincinnati in the 1820s is a pretty frontier town. You know, it's the biggest town around there, but it's a, you know, it's right on the edge of civilization. And so part of this is like this kind of moment in American history where it's occurring to people like, we can be untouched 
if we go down and like we're down there by the Ohio River or something, like there is no authority that's going to tell us how to live. I mean, I think one of the basic motivations of Warren's moves or the of the labor note was just a wanting to get away from state control of economic exchange. But before Warren, there's not many people saying like any kind of collective coercive political arrangement is obviously wrong. But he says it amazingly clearly. So that's why people think of him as the first American anarchist. So where did the system start to break down? For starters, how can an hour always equal an hour? What about work that's particularly difficult, dangerous, or, you know, disgusting? If given the choice between cleaning an outhouse and painting store signs, most people will reach for the paintbrush. Wouldn't there need to be some sort of adjustment process? Because I'd probably paint signs long enough to consider opening an Etsy store before I'd want to clean an outhouse. Warren agreed that yes, it was a problem, but by all available accounts, it was a puzzle he couldn't solve. As for Warren's ultimate vision of a world economy based around a time-based currency, a different economic problem would likely arise. To illustrate this type of problem, American economist Paul Krugman relies on the story of the Capitol Hill babysitting co-op crisis. Here's Krugman to explain, via a clip from his economic masterclass, which he also shared on Twitter. group of couples with, with young children, all of them working somehow or other for Congress, Capitol Hill. They were all a little bit short on money, so instead of hiring babysitters, they would trade off. They would babysit each other's kids. The question was, how do you make sure that everybody does their fair share? The answer was they adopted a script system, little coupons that said one half hour of babysitting time. The babysitter would receive the appropriate number of coupons from the babysittee each time. Great self-enforcing system makes sure that over time everybody does the same amount of, of babysitting. Turned out to have a problem. Everybody wanted to accumulate more coupons, which meant they wanted to babysit, but they didn't want to go out until they had more coupons. But my opportunity to babysit comes from your going out for the night. And so if people aren't willing to go out, then there aren't opportunities to babysit. And as it became clear that opportunities to babysit were scarce, people became even less willing to go out. And so the call got into a recession. Right? They, they managed to create in miniature a, a version of what is what actually happens to the whole economy in a recession. Imagine you live in Cincinnati. The time store continues to grow, so you, like most of your neighbors, use labor notes as a means of buying the goods and services you need. Because you have a finite amount of time you can promise away, naturally you want to spend those hours wisely. If you buy food for the week, but in doing so have exchanged 30 hours of your time as a carpenter, you'll be making tables all week and therefore can't buy anything else. So you want to hold on to your time. And so does everyone else. So demand slows and soon nobody's doing anything. The parents on Capitol Hill decided to print more coupons, which helped alleviate the problem. Clearly not an option when dealing with time. Another reason Warren's time stores didn't stick around longer? Warren would triumphantly declare them a success and then leave. These probably could have been enduring institutions, particularly the one in Cincinnati, if he hadn't regarded these as experiments. You know, like, so he, he, he pushed them to a certain point and then he went off to do another experiment. He had one called Utopia, Ohio. Uh, there was one in, uh, in modern times, the, the wild, temporary autonomous zone on Long Island. Each time these communities fell to land speculation, among other things, like they would build up the town and then real estate agents would come in and say, okay, uh, you know, we'll offer you double which you're claiming this lot is worth or whatever, you know. So I suppose this is another story that can be summed up by capitalism finds a way. If Warren were still alive today, the current state of workers' rights in 2021 would likely have him cashing in his time store labor notes for a quart of whiskey and a good cry. But perhaps he'd take some solace in knowing that his dream is still alive. Today, time banks exist in 34 countries around the world. According to Time Bank USA founder Edgar Kahn, 
500 have been established in the U.S. and 300 in the U.K. They mostly work the same way Warren's Labor Exchange Board worked. Trade an hour for an hour. Many time banks have come and gone over the years, and its limitations as a global currency are generally well agreed upon by economists. But if nothing else, the existence of time banks today, even in a limited capacity, is a good indicator that an alternate form of currency need not entirely replace the dominant currency in order to exist. It's human nature to drift towards thinking in absolutes, that everything has to be a binary choice, either all this or all that. Writer Steve Kempel argues that the Cincinnati Time Store is such an example. The Cincinnati Time Store offers an historical precedent for a different kind of change, one that more or less happens from the middle outward, existing unpretentiously on their own terms, without violating the structure they sought to critique. Speaking of new experimental forms of currency and change from the middle out, let's talk about Bitcoin. Welcome to the second half of Look Both Ways. Before we go any further, I should make a full disclosure about my own personal involvement with Bitcoin. I do have a small part of my portfolio invested in Bitcoin. I'm also a part of a group at Kin and Carta that published a white paper on Bitcoin. We also launched a service offering on educating firms about how to integrate crypto into their portfolio, as well as a service offering on how to integrate into the Bitcoin network itself. I don't directly get paid from that work, nor do I stand to become a bazillionaire if the price of Bitcoin suddenly doubles. Max, our producer, would also like to make it known that he's currently heavily leveraged in Pokemon cards, baby diapers, and jars of pennies that are buried in his backyard. Now that all my bitcoins are on the table, let us begin. Start a conversation about bitcoin with anyone close to the space, and you'll quickly see why people say bitcoin is as much a religion as it is a currency. It has a mysterious origin story. The identity of founder Satoshi Nakamoto has still yet to be revealed which leads some to doubt his existence as a single person. Bitcoin attracts people from all kinds of different backgrounds, ethnicities, ages, political parties, countries of origin. There are even Bitcoin holidays like Bitcoin Pizza Day on May 21st. Honoring the day, a man from Florida agreed to purchase two Papa John's pizzas for 10,000 Bitcoin. That was back in 2010. On this year's Pizza Day, 2021, those pizzas would have been worth a cool $630 million. While Bitcoin is far from the only cryptocurrency worth paying attention to, it is clearly the first, the biggest, and growing the fastest. Accepting Bitcoin as valid payment was once seen as a fringe, trend-chasing, risky decision. But the list of businesses now accepting Bitcoin include Microsoft, PayPal, Whole Foods, Etsy, and Starbucks. Bitcoin is still highly volatile as an asset. It's also built on a technological system that's still very new and still evolving. But one thing that hasn't changed? Bitcoin's revolutionary promise of a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer system of money in which governments have no control, hackers have no way in, and users maintain a level of security and privacy that's hard to achieve in today's tech-driven world. Of course, the pendulum swings both ways. Like anything new, confusing, and technology-based, Bitcoin critics are just as easy to find. The head of JP Morgan called it a fraud. Nobel Prize winning economist Robert Schiller called it a bubble, and even referenced this historical precedent of experimental alternative forms of currency. What is the Cincinnati Time Store? You got it. Yes, that was a tough one. Yes, still got it. The US dollar is the current global reserve currency, so heavy skepticism from American economists and banking executives certainly makes sense. Like if the CEO of Marriott called Airbnb a fad, or Emperor Palpatine underestimating Luke Skywalker and the Rebel Alliance. It's only natural to doubt something that threatens to undermine everything you love. Recently, concerns have swelled about Bitcoin from a different perspective. Bitcoin is 
is boiling the oceans. Bitcoin is setting back any hope for climate change. Cryptocurrency is filthy. So why does Bitcoin use so much energy? Bitcoin falling sharply. The drop came after Tesla CEO Elon Musk tweeted that the company would no longer accept the cryptocurrency as a form of payments for its electric cars. He cited concerns about the use of fossil fuels in Bitcoin mining. Which leads to many Bitcoin advocates saying things like, People misunderstand the energy consumption of systems like Bitcoin. And today I want to talk about why Bitcoin is so good for the environment. There are critics and skeptics of Bitcoin, and sometimes they'll throw the energy thing in your face. But again, I, I think it's a silly notion. But is it a distraction? Even the most conservative estimates of Bitcoin's energy are staggering. A study from March of 2021 by the University of Cambridge estimates the annual power consumption of the Bitcoin network at 129 terawatt hours. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay. So Scott, what does that mean? Glad you asked, Mom. I mean, listener. A terawatt hour is one trillion watts sustained for an hour. So Bitcoin's 129 terawatt hours in a year is roughly the same amount of energy it would take to power 645 trillion refrigerators. Yes, we actually did the math. No, I'm not sure it helped. Because for the real context, you have to go bigger than refrigerators. It's the Netherlands. That's Professor Brian Lucy. Brian is a professor of international finance and commodities, Trinity School of Business at Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. He's been vocal about his concerns surrounding Bitcoin's energy use and was kind enough to talk with us. The Netherlands is not the biggest country in the world, but it certainly isn't small. It's a large, developed, wealthy, luxurious place, and uh, it uses an awful lot of energy. So too does Bitcoin. It uses probably between a half and one percent of global electricity uh, produced is used in Bitcoin. So, you know, again, you know, not the preponderance, but not to be sneezed at. Now, of course, ultimately, it depends on where that energy is coming from. Uh, but, you know, nowhere in the world is, is, is running cryptos or mining cryptos on the basis of 100% pure, clean, green, mountain dew solar energy. It's, uh, it's where the cheapest energy is. And that often, unfortunately, still tends to be rather polluting. Uh, heavy uh, usage of carbon-based energy, heavy usage of coal, etc. So, yeah, in that context... As currencies go, it's a pretty dirty business. If you're thinking, but aren't wind and solar cheaper than fossil fuels in most places? From what we found, yes, and we'll get to that in a bit. But no matter how you slice it, the fact that Bitcoin requires more energy than entire countries like Argentina, the Philippines, and the Netherlands is obviously cause for concern. And it clearly makes for juicy headlines, but it's actually by design. It's called proof of work, and it's a foundational part of how Bitcoin works. If this is old news for you, skip ahead in the podcast for about a minute, or just quietly relive happier moments of your life in slow motion. If it's not, here goes nothing. One thing Bitcoin has in common with gold is that it's mined. Gold is excavated from the earth by huge machines and refined into what we know as gold. Bitcoin, on the other hand, isn't made of physical stuff, there's no actual coin. So how is it mined? Well, replace the huge machines with complex math puzzles and you pretty much have your answer. Standing in the way of the birth of every Bitcoin are complex cryptographic puzzles. So in order to mint a new Bitcoin, miners compete to solve them. Whoever solves a puzzle first wins the new Bitcoin, which at the time of this recording, on September 10th, 2021, 1.30 p.m. Central Time, is worth $45,799. Oh, no, no, wait. It's $45,740. Oh, hold, hang on, sorry. It's $45,646. There's that volatility. All right, back to mining. Faster solving means more computing power. More computing power means more energy. This extraordinary amount of computing power is what keeps Bitcoin secure. Because the blockchain, the core technology Bitcoin is built on, 
relies on thousands of computers across the world, interfering or hacking the Bitcoin network would require a level of computing power that's virtually impossible. This is proof of work. Every transaction is verified by proving the work that went into it. It's a core tenant of the entire system. And it's also specifically why those energy statistics are so bonkers. Or as we like to say in the fancy world of computers, it's a feature, not a bug. The energy use is both huge and on purpose. Clearly doing something on purpose doesn't make it not a problem, but we figured knowing a bit about the intention of the system does help provide useful context. The nuances of Bitcoin mining are just part of what advocates say gets lost as headlines about energy use are propagated from one media outlet to another. And even beyond the debate about incentivizing renewable energy or comparisons to the energy required by our central banking system, there's a powerful human rights argument for Bitcoin. One that shines a different light on the impact decentralized non-state money and financial privacy can have for people who need it the most. There's lots to unpack here, and we'll by no means cover every aspect of this topic, nor are we going to examine every technological or economic argument for or against Bitcoin. For that, I'd recommend typing in Bitcoin into your podcast dispenser and choosing between any of the roughly 25 million options available. But there are some important nuances to talk through, as well as companies doing some fascinating things to address these concerns head on. One company doing such things is called Compass Mining. So remember, you don't have to mine Bitcoin to own it. Someone has to mine it in order for it to exist, just like you can go buy butter, but you don't need to own a cow. When we talk about owning a Bitcoin mining computer, we're talking about buying the cow, so you can get your own butter at a cheaper cost. After you've paid for the cow, and paid for its shots, and its food, and the barn, damn. I really should have thought through buying that cow before I actually bought it. Anyway, we talked with Compass founder and CEO, Whit Gibbs, to hear more. One quick note, for those not as familiar with Bitcoin technology, you'll hear Whit and I refer to ASICs. While I am a fan of the running shoes, no, no, we don't mean that ASICs. A-S-I-C, ASIC, is an acronym for Application Specific Integrated Circuit. It's a fancy way of saying a computer that does exactly one thing. In this case, it's Bitcoin mining. Okay, here's my conversation with Wit. Wit Gibbs is the founder and CEO of Compass Mining, a Bitcoin-first company on a mission to support the decentralized growth of hash rate and strengthen network security by helping more people learn, explore, and mine Bitcoin. In July of 2021, Compass Mining announced a 20-year partnership with U.S.-based Oaklo to build mining facilities powered by clean, reliable, cost-effective nuclear fission reactors. More on that in a bit. First, welcome Whit Gibbs, and thanks for being with us today. Scott, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you having me on the show. So first off, just to you know, set the groundwork, other than what I just said, if you could give us a little more in-depth view of exactly how does Compass work. So Compass... We set out in October of 2020 to help everyone mine Bitcoin. Prior to us launching our platform and, and starting the company, it was very difficult for the average person to be able to participate in what we feel is really the greatest opportunity for generational wealth transfer in this day and age, uh, and that is Bitcoin and, and Bitcoin mining. So all we are is a conduit to help more people buy the hardware that they need, get it set up in great data centers around the world so that they are able to mine Bitcoin to their own wallets and start securing that future of finance for their family. Great. And if you don't mind, just, just dive a little more deeply into that. So are, are you like a, a marketplace for Bitcoin rigs? But I think also you set them up for people as well, right? So they can basically... Yeah, like almost like a managed service or Bitcoin mining as a service. Is that is that a little closer as well? Yeah, you're spot on, Scott. So the easiest way for you know to correlate it for people who are listening is to think of it like an Airbnb, right? When you're when you're looking for a place to stay, you're reliant upon Airbnb as a trusted third party to know which is a good place, which is a place you may want to avoid. So Compass becomes that marketplace for people who wanted to get get into Bitcoin mining. 
because they may not have the means or the wherewithal to screen data centers around the world. So we have done that for them. The other thing that we do is we help them source the hard to get Bitcoin mining ASICs, which allow them to actually mine the Bitcoin. And then we put it all together, right? We help them source the ASICs. We send them to these data centers help them get plugged in, and then we help to manage those machines for them. So if there's any issues or they need to be reset or there's technical troubles that we can troubleshoot with, uh, we take care of all of that for them so that they're able to just, I hate to say set it and forget it, but take a more hands-off approach to the Bitcoin mining, uh, the technical aspects of Bitcoin mining while still enjoying the, uh, the upside of being able to accumulate more Bitcoin. So one of the things we just led in with was the, the deal for nuclear fission reactors. So that's, that's a technology that has been promised for a while. And, you know, again, so if you want to, uh, probably you know more about this than I do, so I'll let, I'll let you talk about it, is difference between fission and fusion and why you're interested in that as compass mining and, and what you think the horizon for that is. So I guess that's kind of three separate things. So first off, to start with, you know, why fission versus fusion? So I, I'll have to leave the fission versus fusion to uh, ah. to someone that's more <laughs> adept in the nuclear field. What we really bought into when it came to the deal with Oaklo is their vision for helping these small communities, right? These micro reactors are, are very important because they're going to give access uh, to cheap energy for people who wouldn't otherwise have it. So they'll build these facilities, these small mini reactors in places where, uh, you know, maybe they're they're not able to sustain cheap power prices, but this will help them get the benefits of having access to this cheap, plentiful nuclear energy. Uh, and then the other aspect of Oakland that's very attractive is they're using nuclear waste in order to power these reactors. And I mean, obviously we all hear it all the time. Nuclear waste is impossible to get rid of. The half-life is... Uh, is something that we're you know likely never going to see it dissipate from this planet. Uh, so we want to give them the ability to reuse that in these mini reactors. How we step in to help is that anytime a you know a municipality or an area is not able to consume all of the power that these reactors are putting off, Compass can build a Bitcoin mining facility, small or large, to take in whatever excess capacity is being produced, so that the the town can get. Uh, the cheapest power possible. Oaklo can obviously maintain their profitability and continue to scale and grow and support more communities. And then Compass's clients will get that cheap, renewable uh, nuclear energy that we're always keen to work with. What Wit is describing is one example of what Bitcoin advocates will point out again and again in response to the energy issue. Bitcoin mining can rely on renewable energy, primarily wind, solar, and geothermal, and what's called stranded energy in ways other industries simply cannot. Stranded energy refers to energy that's usable, but wasted because of limitations in the production process, often natural gas flares, hydroelectric power, and others. For energy companies trying to develop the cheapest, most reliable, renewable energy technology, Bitcoin mining facilities can play a useful role. Energy arbitrage would explain that now, especially in times where you have these massive energy consumers who have been either partially or entirely shut down because of COVID and all of the, the delays and stoppages therein, uh, Bitcoin miners make a natural partner to help these companies stay afloat because when they sign on for these big power purchase agreements, they are responsible for paying for that power, even if they're not able to actually consume it. Mm -hmm. So partnerships with Bitcoin miners allow these companies to stay in business, to stay afloat and to leverage Bitcoin mining as a way to subsidize some of their costs. And we're seeing this across a lot of industries, but specifically in like the, the oil fields is, uh, is one area where we're seeing a lot of Bitcoin mining on the uptake because these oil producers, obviously they've got natural gas that's being produced as a byproduct. And in the past they've had to flare it and flaring is terrible for the environment. And they have to get rid of it in order to keep the well operational. So now you have these great Bitcoin mining companies that are stepping in to help with flare mitigation uh, and running the, the natural gas through these Bitcoin mining facilities so that instead of flaring and damaging the environment, you can simply mine Bitcoin. Uh, and then, you know, it puts off CO2, which is much, uh, much less harmful than the greenhouse gases from flaring. Has mining with renewable energy become a priority for you at Compass? Absolutely. It's the, it's, it's so important for the entire industry. And really we hear so much FUD about, uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt about how much energy Bitcoin miners consume, uh, which is, you know, we can talk about that later, but 
most Bitcoin miners are really looking for the cheapest, cleanest sources of power that they can get. And we're just the same, chasing the cheapest, cleanest power we can find. And is that a criteria that you allow people to shop on? So if I, if I went to your site and I said, yeah, I want to get into Bitcoin mining, but I'm only interested if I feel like I am not increasing the, the carbon footprint on this planet directly. It certainly is. So on our site, if you go and you look at the facilities, you'll see that some of them are marked renewable. And what that means is that the majority of their energy is coming from renewable sources. Uh, all of the facilities on the Compass platform that are based in North America have initiatives to move towards 100% renewable power by 2030 or 2050, depending on where they're located geographically. But we think that this will be a continuing trend and eventually uh, 99% of all of the Bitcoin mined using the Compass platform will come from renewables. What also often gets lost from the coverage of Bitcoin's energy use? The fact that it's one of the most sustainable industries in the world in terms of its reliance on renewable energy. The Bitcoin Mining Council estimates the global energy mix of the Bitcoin network could be as high as 56% renewable. For comparison, the US uses electricity that's only 30% sustainable. China, it uses less than 15% renewable. This is largely because mining can take place truly anywhere in the world, meaning the logistical barriers that prevent other industries from building directly at renewable energy sources simply don't exist for Bitcoin mining. So there's an argument that Bitcoin mining can accelerate our transition to renewable energy. But what about the mining itself? Dr. Larissa Yara Ovea of Southampton University said that Bitcoin could be the first inefficient version of a disruptive technology adding that it should die for the common good and be replaced by a new model, which is typically the pattern that new forms of technology tend to follow. 20 years ago, Nokia and Blackberry were top dogs in the new cell phone revolution. But clearly being first doesn't always mean you'll be best. So could new innovative approaches make Bitcoin mining more efficient or even reimagine the process altogether? Quick term explanation again, you'll hear us talk about proof of stake as an alternative to the proof of work system we talked about earlier, the one Bitcoin is built on. In a proof of stake system, miners don't become more powerful because of their computing power. They become more powerful based on how many coins are held by the miner. It uses a lot less energy and several growing cryptocurrencies are either built on or moving to proof of stake systems. Okay, back to the conversation with Wit. In terms of the equipment itself, what are you seeing in terms of like how that efficiency is going to continue to grow? Like, is that something that you're tracking year over year? And what are your projections? Because that's, again, people are concerned about the energy usage. That would certainly be a way for machines themselves to become more efficient. Less energy would be expended overall. And we are seeing that. We're seeing the machines get more efficient with each new iteration. And I, I, we will, I think, hit a point where... Uh, Moore's law will not hold true necessarily. You know, what we're looking at when it comes to this is basically these chips that are being used to manufacture the ASICs are decreasing in size uh, in a way that I think most people just, I mean, just to explain it, right? Right now, the machines that are being produced use five nanometer chips. So when you think about five nanometers, it's like a fraction of a fraction of, a, of the width of one strand of your hair, right? So to scale that down, it becomes harder and harder with each new iteration. And we are getting to a point where the, while the efficiency is continuing to improve somewhat, the overall hash rate of the machines, that com computational power is not increasing as much as it did in the past. So I'm still watching to see when we get to this point where the difference in the old machines and the new machines isn't great enough for people to be incentivized to take the old machines offline. Uh, and I think we may see that actually in the next six months or so. Once the new machines are released, I don't know if there's going to be enough of a difference and the jury's still out. We need to see what, you know, what Bitmain and MicroBT say these new machines will be capable of doing. Um, but we'll see. I think that uh, we may have already gotten to this point where the incentives aren't strong enough for people to start to, uh, to move their old machines off for new machines. One of the things that people have looked at when, when they do get concerned about the energy consumption is changing the algorithm or moving to a different algorithm. Uh, and, and other cryptocurrencies have different algorithms for doing 
the validation, right? And uh, so, I mean, what, what's your viewpoint on that? Do you think that proof of stake, uh, as an example, um, can dramatically reduce the energy required for mining? And is that a good thing? So I, I, it won't reduce the energy consumption for uh, to operate a blockchain successfully. The other aspect is that you're not really doing anything except rebuilding the existing financial system when you move to proof of stake. What you're doing is you're incentivizing people who can come in with large amounts of capital and can run these nodes and they can basically monopolize the rewards that come from staking. And that's what we see. You know, when it comes to mining, everyone can participate. Everyone can have an ASIC on the network and can accumulate Bitcoin. Uh, and really for any of these other proof of work coins, it's the same. And then when you look at proof of stake, it's who can come in and buy as many of these coins as is needed to run a node. And then they will receive all of the validating rewards for operating that node. And for me, it's it's really just bringing back the banking system. But what we've done is we've uh, renamed the new bankers, the the node holders and the stakers, as opposed to JP Morgan Chase and Wells Fargo. So, for the all-in-on-Bitcoin people, like Whit Gibbs, the danger of of proof-of-stake is that it would effectively rebuild the thing Bitcoin is designed to leave behind. The central banking system in which those with the fattest wallets control everything. The energy debate is really just one big cost-benefit analysis. Those 129 terawatt-hours are part of the cost of Bitcoin, as is the 22 million tons of CO2 emissions a year it generates as estimated in a 2019 study in the scientific journal, Joule. What about the environmental costs of other industries? According to the Air Transport Action Group, worldwide air travel accounted for 915 million tons of carbon emissions in 2019. While airlines are pushing towards new renewable fuel sources, people aren't frantically calling for the grounding of all air travel. Why? We take it for granted as a necessary and worthwhile part of modern life. We understand the personal and economic benefits of getting in a big metal tube and zooming around the planet at 600 miles an hour. When the cost of something new like Bitcoin becomes clear, tangible, and even alarming, but its value isn't as easy to grasp, the whole thing can sound preposterous. Which brings us back to the heart of what the Bitcoin movement is trying to achieve. A global peer-to-peer, decentralized system of money, meaning it's not controlled by any one actor, which can mean very different things to different people. For the 4.2 billion people living under authoritarian governments, non-state money isn't just a novel new investment opportunity. It can be the difference between life and death. In Belarus, a nonprofit called BYSOL distributed more than $2.3 million in Bitcoin to thousands of people who have been fired, arrested, or had bank accounts frozen for speaking out against their country's authoritarian government. In October of 2020, a Nigerian group called the Feminist Coalition saw their bank accounts frozen for collecting donations to help protest police brutality. They quickly began accepting Bitcoin, and within days raised over $180,000 for legal aid, gas masks, and medical care for peaceful demonstrators. Venezuelans are using Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies to escape hyperinflation. Similar stories to those have come out of Burma, Turkey, Palestine, Zimbabwe, the list goes on. Who am I as a straight, white, gainfully employed American man to tell people in those circumstances that Bitcoin needs to become greener in order to be considered a good thing for the world? So we asked Wit, why do you believe it's worth it? I'll speak personally because I think that Bitcoin is deeply personal and everyone who is involved, whether they're speculating on the asset or they're trading or they're mining, they have their own motivations and reasons. How I see this is, you know, as someone my age, when I was growing up, I missed the internet wave. It wasn't something that I was able to participate in just because of my age. And when Bitcoin came around and I saw it, I saw for the first time the ability to really be a meaningful part of something that I thought would be huge. And by huge, I mean, it would provide the ability for uh, the future of payments. It would provide the ability for further development on top of Bitcoin. Uh, And I really don't think there's ever anything as big as this since the internet. And I don't know that there will be anything as big as this after Bitcoin. And that's really why we feel that everyone should participate because we're in a world now and not to get, you know, 
too uh, too philosophical here. But we're in a world now where um, it's it's very evident to see that more and more freedoms are are being compromised and stripped. Uh, and one of the ways that your freedoms can most be constrained is by control over your finances. If you have all of your money in a bank, at any point in time, those funds can be frozen and you are, you are locked out from access to your capital. And Bitcoin gives you the ability to always have access to something that allows you to improve your life in some way, shape or form with regards to the, the means necessary to spend on the things that you want or need in life. It's funny that you do mention that one of the advantages of Bitcoin is that you know, you control your own money because recently I understand that Compass's bank accounts that are held with uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, also oddly enough, a form, my former employer, um, were were frozen by uh, by Chase. So, so you, you care to comment on that? Like, how did that happen? You know, what does that mean uh, for you and for other uh, similar companies in this space? Pretty ironic, huh? But uh, yeah. you know, when it came to that situation. It started out harmlessly enough. You know, we, we've grown very quickly as a company and we started like most businesses do as a, a small business with the bank. And when we went in to register, I went in personally to register the bank account. <laughs> it's very hard for them to classify what what is this business? Like, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. Are you selling computers? Are you like they had trouble labeling it? And I think this played into some of the challenges that we faced as we scaled. And then what happened is we were we were notified a while back that our account was being reviewed to see if we should be moved into a a higher tier for business banking. So we thought, you know, harmlessly enough, uh, we'll just go with this and whatever they need, we'll provide it. And then we, uh, we were, you know, told that in doing this review, there could be the possibility that our account would be flagged because we touched the Bitcoin or cryptocurrency space. Mm. And so my first question is, okay, well, you have a, a lot of our money in your account. So if it's flagged, does that mean we are frozen out from our funds? They said, no, you'll have 90 days. If there's an issue, you'll have 90 days to remove all of your funds uh, and you'll be able to move to another institution. So as soon as they said that, we immediately set out to uh, make sure that we had like other banking partners. Uh, fortunately, we were able to to work out a, a great partnership with Signature Bank and they've taken the majority of our business. We moved a lot of our funds out of Chase. Um, and then one day I went to log on and I, I couldn't make a wire transfer to pay one of my vendors online. So I am at this time I'm in Europe, so I can't go into the bank branch. So I contact our COO and I say, Hey, can you run in and, and do this wire in person? There's something up with online banking. So he gets in and he goes, uh, they just informed me that our account was closed effective yesterday. I'm like, uh -oh. so no, 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 no notice, <laughs> no, nothing. Uh, we called our we called our banker and he wouldn't pick up, our, our relationship banker wouldn't pick up the phone. We actually didn't find out why our account was closed until we, um, we actually used a Google number to call him, so it was an anonymous number, and he picked up and we were able to have the conversation <laughs> with him. They'd done right by us for a long time, but that one thing was just, how do you do that to someone? Like how, how do you just shut down a business's bank account cold turkey and expect them to be able to survive. I mean, what if all of our funds were in there? What if that would have been this monumental thing and we wouldn't have been able to pay vendors for right. a week or a month? It could have been detrimental to business. Yeah, well, that's good. I'm glad you were able to recover and hopefully you have a better <laughs> banking partner. And it's, I don't this know. This is why we Bitcoin. This is, this yeah, is why we right. Bitcoin. It's just like, <laughs> yeah. the universe validates you sometimes. Bitcoin can be something of a Rorschach test. Everyone can see something different in it depending on your view of the world and what you care about. If you're trying to escape hyperinflation and economic collapse, Bitcoin is your way out. If you're oppressed politically, Bitcoin can help give you financial privacy and freedom. If you've been burned by fleeting trends in the past, Bitcoins are really just beanie babies in disguise. If you're an old rich white guy from Connecticut and inherently skeptical about anything that could unseat the dollar, Bitcoin is a bubble and nothing more. As we wrapped up with Wit, we talked a bit about this and why self-awareness is important, particularly for the Bitcoin maximalists, which are people that believe in the near future, Bitcoin will be the only digital currency needed. I, I just like to encourage the community to do it with open eyes. And sometimes I feel like once you become a Bitcoin enthusiast, you tend, it's, it's, it's human, right? It's confirmation bias, right? Like you only yes. look at the things that you think are helping you. And so I think it's helpful as a community to always just question yourselves and say, is this really the best thing? Or 
And it's hard to do that when you feel like you're under attack all the time. Everyone's like, oh, Bitcoin's the worst thing ever. When yeah. Bitcoin's a fraud, you're an idiot. You know, then you constantly don't feel like, well, as soon as I open myself up for self-examination, then I'm, I'm giving them more arrows to shoot into my already arrow pierced body. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, I think you, what you said, you know, if it's everything, then it's nothing. Yeah. That resonates because it's very, uh, the Bitcoin fixes this yes. saying for everything, <laughs> uh, is a big pet peeve of mine. Yeah. Um, because while it may be true in some cases, it's most certainly not true in all cases. Thanks, Wit, for joining us. It's been a great, it's been a great conversation. Uh, I'm going to be continuing to follow what uh, Compass Mining is doing. Uh, and, I, and I encourage people to understand why you might want to get involved in mining and what the, the effect of Bitcoin mining could be as a positive effect on our, on our energy industry. So I think, I think you brought forward some good points that are worth people... Uh, looking into further. Scott, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. It's always good to be able to, uh, to sit down and, and talk about Bitcoin mining. So thanks for giving me the opportunity. Clearly, this topic is anything but a black and white issue. The impact Bitcoin could have on the world is extraordinary. It also has plenty of unanswered questions and is inherently still a new and maturing technology. That's why many say the best way we'll answer those questions and eventually realize the benefits of a decentralized digital currency is to do what Josiah Warren did, experiment. Josiah Warren loved talking about his ideas, but the only reason we're talking about them nearly 200 years later is because he built an actual retail store, printed labor notes, and put his ideas to test. He made his ideas real, tangible, and testable. When companies like Compass Mining power their operations with things like nuclear waste, solar, and wind, they help set a precedent for the rest of the world about what sustainable mining looks like. When businesses choose to engage with crypto and explore how it can help them serve their customers, new paths to value are revealed and the whole system grows stronger. When brave people in places like Nigeria and Belarus demonstrate why Bitcoin can be far more than just a method of payment, conversation can change entirely. And when a nation embraces Bitcoin, we get to see firsthand what happens when a cryptocurrency sits next to the dollar as equally legal tender, which is exactly what the nation of El Salvador just made official. For Professor Brian Lucy, the news is as exciting as it gets. Oh, I'm sitting here with popcorn watching like, oh my God. That's our show. Thanks to Professor Crispin Sartwell, Professor Brian Lucy, Whit Gibbs of Compass Mining, Chris Pinsky, Joshua Phillips, George Proudfoot, Bob Bowden, Chris Weiland, and Fred Banerjee-Parker from Kinnancarta for lending your expertise our way. Special thanks to Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever you may really be, for inventing Bitcoin. This episode was produced and written by Max Parcell and Ashley Higuchi. Sound engineering by Chris Mitchell. Music by Ethan Parcell. If you want to learn more about Bitcoin, check out our white paper, Bitcoin, Web 3.0, and the Internet of Money at KinnonCarta.com. Please, if you enjoyed this episode, follow us and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram. Please send us your ideas for episodes. Visit LookBothWays.com.KinnonCarta.com or, if you prefer, encode your idea on the blockchain as an immutable pseudo-anonymous transaction, attach one one-thousandth of a Bitcoin to it, and forward it to my Bitcoin wallet. 3J98, lowercase t, 1W, lowercase p, EZ27. 3CN, lowercase m, Q, lowercase v, i, c, r, n, y, i, capital W. Lowercase r, n, q, capital R, lowercase h, capital W, n, capital L, y. See you next episode. <laughs>